0: Um, today we're going to be uh, in Matthew 4. We were in with the temptations at the beginning of Matthew 4 last week. We're going to be begin- the, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But there's some things that, you might, that might help you to know before we get to that. So let me, I'll give you the kind of background on, um, on the gospel writers and uh, what they concentrated on. And then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the meat of the text. So you'll notice in John... John has some ministry that takes place, even a miracle at the wedding in Cana, uh, John 2, uh, pretty early on. But there are three years historically of Jesus' ministry. There's the, what they call the year of obscurity, the year of popularity, and then the year of conflict. Now, different theologians will articulate that a little bit differently, but um, from the time that Jesus was baptized by john the baptizer and he was then uh um tempted by the devil himself and the then the death of john the baptizer we know historically that that's about a year not quite but about a year so we go from the temptation where jesus is powerful enough to vanquish the devil with one command get away from me satan be gone satan um And the next thing we hear is that once Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned, so he was killed not long after that, but once once he heard that John was in prison, then Jesus came. So you'll remember in John chapter 2, I hope, the wedding at Cana, when they run out of wine and Jesus' mom comes to him and says, hey, here's what's going on. And he says to her, and I'm sure it sounds better than it does in our English uh, vernacular, but he goes, woman? It's not yet my time. You remember that statement? It's kind of an odd statement. Um, it, it would be like, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't talk like that to my mom, but I'm sure that how it gets translated, it's, it's actually endearing, but she didn't listen to him. She just asked the service to do whatever he told him, and then he, he, he performed a miracle anyway, and it's a really cool thing in a wedding to be able to say that, that a wedding was so important. And that time and now that the God of the universe in flesh was willing to change his eternal agenda to make sure this wedding came off without a hitch. So his, his, his miraculous ministry, his teaching, preaching, and, and miracles, and, and, and healings, and all, all that kind of stuff, not a lot of that happened in the first year of his ministry. But his public ministry, when it goes public, that's when things kind of start. Um, however... And I don't know that this is true. I just know that there's some theologians that argue that it is, and there's some theologians that argue that it isn't. So I just want to put that out to you, that I'm not telling you this because I think it's, it's the gospel truth, so to speak. I'm telling you this because it's worth considering. When he calls the first disciples, it implies, some would say it implies that he had a previous relationship with them, that, that he hasn't called them to follow him yet, as a, as a rabbi to a disciple, but, but that they may have been the ones that were present at the wedding when he performed the miracle, that, that he, he was known to them and they were known to him, but he hadn't asked them to abandon their lives yet. So when, you, when we read this, understand that maybe there was something, there was some prior relationship, but I still think that Jesus called to them and his beginning ministry is very disruptive, and we'll talk a little bit about why? So let's pray together. Let me get my timer going here. Let's pray together and then we'll get into the meat of the text. Lord, thank you. Really, thank you for four different approaches to telling us about your life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we bless you for that. If, if we didn't know these things, our lives would be full of desperation, anxiety, fear, and hopelessness. That's exactly the way the people that you first, that you first went to, that's what they were experiencing. So thank you that, that there are scholars that can show that. Thank you that, that, that you show us through who you are and what you did and what you said, and even your suffering, death, and resurrection, the great love you have for humanity. Lord, I ask that you give me the demeanor, the cadence, the tone, and the words to speak what you want your people to hear this morning. And Lord, if there's something I have planned to say that you want, you don't want me to say, I don't want to say it. So convict me of it, but do not let it come out of my mouth. But if there's something you have to say that I haven't considered in prayer or study, make it clear to me it's from you, and I will speak it to your people today. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. We pray this in Jesus' name, through the power of your Spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. So, Jesus, at least according to some scholars, after the temptation had gone, not obscurity, but he, his ministry wasn't real public yet. And so, he had some relationships. He was going around his, his home area, and, and, and his name was growing, but he didn't have a real following yet. But it says here that Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, that's Lake, lake Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he went and lived in Capernaum. And by the way, that's where he kind of centered the rest of his ministry, uh, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali to fulfill what, w- what was said through the prophet Isaiah. This is the fifth or sixth fulfillment of prophecy in Matthew, and we're only, at, it, we're only in, in chapter 4. The land of Zebulon and the land of Na- Naphtali, uh, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. A couple of things about Naphtali Naphtali and Zebulon, and even just the whole of that area of Galilee. Galilee was known as the Galilee of the Gentiles, and it says it right here in this prophetic word, but, but these people really were known as the people living in darkness, because for over 700 years, closer to 800 years, depending on when Jesus' public ministry actually started, it could be over 800 years. They had been, they had been, they had been conquered by the Assyrians and then the Syrians and now Romans. And this this area, they they weren't these Jewish people who lived among the Gentiles in in Capernaum area and the Galilean area. Um, they were so far removed from the center of Jewish life. Jerusalem and the temple, that they were forced to be influenced by non-Jewish people, Gentiles, pagans, people that worshiped a plethora of gods. Uh, and, and not just for, I mean, our country is less than 250 years old, right? Am I right? 1976 was the bicentennial. We're getting close. But, but for 800 years, they did not have what they desired. And so these are folks that, that where Jesus centered his ministry, these are folks that are absolutely dying with messianic hope and living in perpetual hopelessness. It's interesting to me that the place that Jesus begins his public ministry are with, among, and for the people that have the least hope in the region. They're not Roman, Roman had great hope because the Romans had great hope because they believed that they were kind of the kingdom of their God on earth. But these people in this little backwater area are influenced by lots of pagan, uh, pagan folks um, and, and, and different beliefs. And they have these little tiny churches, we call them, they call them synagogues, where they could try to hold on to a bit of who they are, where they come from, and what they want. There's a guy named Michael J. uh, Wilkins that says it this way. Although he was weak, I'm sorry, let me get get to that. Um, The people living in this area were called the people sitting in darkness. They had been ruled over and forced to be influenced by Gentiles for almost 800 years. They were away from the central, I'd already said that, but this was where the Messiah goes first. And, And they all had expectations as to who the Messiah was. I don't usually have notes but I want to make sure I get some of these quotes right. But when I do have notes, I tell you, and then I come back and I repeat myself. So my apologies, it might happen again. The, the, where Jesus showed up, just for, it's a, it's the way to the sea. So it's a trade route. So people coming from all over the place would work their way through Galilee, specifically Capernaum. And so as the people were being influenced by the Gentiles, Jesus showing up, In that area means that he's not only going to speak to the Jews that have no hope, but he's going to influence the Gentiles that don't know they have no hope. And they all had expectations. The Jewish people had expectations about who the Messiah would be. And they all differed. Depending on who you are, what class of people, or what family you came from, you had a different idea or understanding of what the Messiah would be. And I'm just going to list three of them. There's more like seven or eight of about how these schools of thought about the Messiah. Some had the, the this is from Donald Gowan, some had the, uh, the, the idea that, that God, the Messiah, through the Messiah, must transform the human person to give a new heart and a new spirit. This is probably the, the attitude of most of the Pharisees. The second understanding of what the Messiah would do is that that through the Messiah, God must transform human society and restore Israel to the promised land, rebuild the cities, make Israel's new status a witness to the nations. And they expected the Messiah to be more militaristic, probably the zealots. And then the other is God must transform through through the Messiah, must transform nature itself. So, the whole new heavens and new earth, that, that, that all things that fell at the fall would be made right. That was the expectation. So, different schools of thought, different understandings, different people had different hopes, desires, and had convinced themselves that this is who the Messiah would be. And here's the problem. He was all of those things and none of those things at the same time. We know, because of the picture of Jesus, we know that, that he transformed nature. He could turn water into wine. He, he could have turned stones into bread. We know that he calmed the sea, that he walked on water, that with a, a kid's sack lunch, he fed over 5,000 men and then women and children. We know that he was able to say to leprosy, be clean, and it would go to, to a dead person to rise. That's transformation of the natural world. We also know that, that he came to, to, to make... Not to be militaristic, but to but to change the idea of how Israel saw itself. To 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 not to restore it to the promised land, but to say that you have always ex- been expected to be a light on a hill, so that all people like 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 moths to a flame. That all people, you have access to the truth of the God of Scripture and all that He says and all that He wants for humanity and and, and, and uh, And people will see that, and they will turn and look at you, and and, and they will follow God because of who you are. That's what God's initial intent was with Israel. But some of these folks had it like, no, no, we're just supposed to rule over the rest of the world. So yes, Jesus came to establish a kingdom. He says right here that the kingdom of heaven is near, but it's not the kind of kingdom that the zealots and others wanted. We also know that he came to transform the hearts and the minds of people but the Pharisees and people like them had figured out and, 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 and decided that that wasn't about, uh, about old being new. It wasn't about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. It was renewing our minds ourselves by adherence to the law. So it was do, 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 do. That makes you righteous. And that means that God is pleased with you. And Jesus came to say, no one is righteous. No one can do this on their own. I have come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness by giving your life to me. So all these expectations, all these understandings, all these hopes and schools of thought, he came to to fulfill but to counter. And I'm, I'm sad to say that I don't think it's that different today our progressive brothers and sisters, progressive Christians, I'm not talking about progressive politics, but progressive Christians want Jesus to be someone that Scripture does not say he is. And our uber conservative brothers and sisters want to turn Jesus into to, to almost nothing but a judge who's out there to say how wrong we are. And we have a group of people that want Jesus to be to, to give us back our national pride. And we have others that say that, that God is only concerned about the earth itself and the climate and how we treat animals and how we treat trees and, and grass and, and, and our, our, our environment. I'm not coming down on any of those things. Those are natural human wants. But I'm going to read you a line from, this, uh, from Michael Wilkins, and I just want you to hear it and see if it convicts you in any way we both he jesus both both met and didn't meet all of the human agendas but his agenda boils down to how you respond to him people are forced to make a decision with the person of jesus christ either with, you're either with him or you're against him they either must we must either adjust our expectations to align with his or reject him because he will not assume our agenda. I've been saying for years that who they were and who we are aren't that different. And who we are and who they were aren't very different. We all come with preconceptions. We all come with desires. We all hope that God will give us what we want. But he came to give us What he wants, and if he is indeed the creator of all things, don't we believe that he knows better than we do what is best for us? Remember when he sent the the Israelites into Babylon, and he said, I know the plans I have. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future, but that was before 72 years in captivity. But what did he do in the midst of that? He transformed a pagan demon-worshipping king into one who proclaimed that the God of the universe is the God of the universe. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation said. So God knows what he's doing. Are we willing to say, not my will, but yours? It goes on. Jesus begins to preach. When uh, when Jesus heard that John had been put in... Oh, sorry, I just did that... Um, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of, uh, J- James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father, or they left their boat and their father and they followed him. So we're pretty sure based on other evidences in scripture that Peter and his brother Andrew weren't real well to do. Now they may have had a little boat but they were, they were on the shore here casting nets. So they wading up to their waist and throwing. So it's like the difference between, uh, I'm a bass fisherman, between I me and a bass fisherman in a boat and someone who fishes from shore and a pond fisherman. So John, uh, excuse me, uh, Peter and Andrew, probably not that well off, although we knew that Peter was married and he had a mother in law that lived with him. Um, but, but James and John with dad, this is a family business, they have boats. So you've got Jesus right here calling people that, not of ill repute, but not people that have influence in society, Andrew and Peter, and then people who do, John and James. And notice what they do. He says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to repeat something I said to you last year when we were in the gospel according to Mark, but right now I just want you to notice that they left, they picked up and they left their families. If you're Zebedee, how are you feeling about that? If you ever had a family business that you wanted to hand off to your offspring, to your progeny, to your son or your daughter or or nephews or nieces, and they they rejected that and said, I'm going to go make my own way, and then they wanted to go be an actor, how would you feel? See, this isn't just disruptive to the lives of Andrew and Peter and James and John, but to Zebedee and their families. They decided at that point to to drop the nets and leave. And what is he calling them to do? As a fisherman, I know what it's like when, I'm not a fish, so I don't know exactly what it's like, but I do know that, that if you're a fisher of men, he used that analogy for a reason. What happens to the fish when they're caught? Is that slightly disruptive in their lives? And back then, they caught to eat. I catch, weigh in, and release. But it's still very disruptive. I would love to hear the story they tell their family when they go back. <laughs> but if you catch a fish in that day and age with your cast nets or your drag nets, it destroys the life of the fish. And Jesus is saying to Andrew to Peter, to James, and to John, come with me and I will make it so that you destroy the lives of people in a glorious way. But you will destroy their lives because of me. Everything will change. They will no longer be the same. The old will be gone. The new will come. We see it over and over and over again in Scripture. Jesus asked for total Devotion, total dedication. He tells us at the end of the Gospel according to Matthew that that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he wants us to go while baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. There isn't that Jesus isn't like he's, it's not hyperbolic. He's not saying, "Hey, just so you know, I was asking a lot. Don't really, I'm, I'm, I'm over asking." It's not that big of a deal. Just, just be nicer. It's not what he's doing. Remember the rich young man who comes to, a good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We could go through all of that and tear it apart, but that guy, he came with an attitude. But that was the attitude of people that thought that if I'm good enough, God must accept me. And Jesus asked him some questions, and then he said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have, give to the poor, follow me. And the guy, it says he looked down before he was a very rich man, and he walked away. Did Jesus chase him down? Oh, I'm sorry, I was being hyperbolic. Pfft. I didn't mean everything, just enough, just 10%, you'll be good, just it's all, it, 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 dude, it's okay, come on, come on, just come on. No, he let him walk. And according to, if, if the story ends there with that man, and it's, according to Scripture, we hear nothing more about him, that man does not have salvation. Why? Because Jesus demands absolute obedience to him. So when he calls his disciples to be fishers of men, he's saying to them, they don't know it yet, but you will be people who preach my gospel and you will destroy the lives, the political ambitions, the fame hopes, the the, the security that people have had for generations, you will destroy all of it. Because sooner or later, people are going to have to decide if it's me they follow, or if it's family they follow, or if it's politics that they follow, or if it's wealth that they follow. And each of those things throughout the gospel, Jesus addresses, there is no difference between what God is calling us to and what he called the first disciples to. And then his ministry begins in earnest. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Now, remember, we talked about this is the kind of a trade route. So even though he's walking everywhere he goes, God's, God, God's speed, when we say to people God's speed, that's about 2.3 to 3.1 miles an hour because that's how fast someone walks. So Jesus walking everywhere he went, talking to people. He, he, he's not, no discriminator. He, he, if you're Jewish or if you're Gentile, it doesn't matter. He's going to every disease, everything that comes his way. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those who having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Decapolis is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, known as the place where the devil lives. Remember the demoniac that had, that had legion? That's the Decapolis, that's the Gerasenes. From Jer- Jerusalem, from Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him in just a very short time because of what he was doing, what he was calling people to. So, now, we'll find out later, in, even in this gospel, that some people were like, this is cool. It gives me the Holy Spirit shivers. I just kind of like this stuff. And, and he calls them out and said, look, you're either a, f-, there's a book about this, but you're either, a, you're either a, a friend, a fan, or a follower of Jesus. And the only one he tolerates, and I'm not coming down, I'm not saying he's just a mean, uh, mean Messiah, but the only one he tolerates is a follower. Someone who says, I am no longer my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes everything I do possible. He's the one that makes everything I am transformed. He's the one that redeemed me. Nothing I can do for myself, but only what God has done through me. He imputes or puts upon me righteousness and he takes upon him my unrighteousness, imputed sin, imputed righteousness. That is not something that is non-disruptive, because it means that nothing changes in our lives except by, through, for, and from the Messiah. Michael Wilkins puts it this way. He says, although he was weak at the end of a fast. Jesus vanquished Satan with a word of a command. This deliverer did not fit stereotypical messianic molds because the power and authority of Jesus that Jesus displayed was neither militaristic nor political. but his authority and power were staggering nonetheless. Jesus was powerful enough to conquer the devil uh, the devil's rule over this world, Universal enough, to include both Jews and Gentiles in his Messianic gospel, authoritative enough to transform simple men into leaders of a movement that changed the course of human history, and effective enough to attend to the basic needs of people body, soul and spirit. This is the kind of messianic deliverer that advances the kingdom of God. It's not that sweet friendly, wimpy Jesus that we sometimes want him to be. And his job is not to make my life easier, and his job is not to tell me what's convenient to me in the current cultural context. His job is to deliver me from sin. And my job is to say, yes, Lord. See, that is very disrupting. And if your life has not been disrupted by the God-man Emmanuel, God with us, Chris Kindle, the Christ child, if your life has not been disrupted, I'd I'd do a little gut check. I'd wonder, am I asking God to bend to my agenda or am I bending my will to His? If you notice who He called, poor, And rich. If you consider where he went, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He didn't go to the temple. He spent two of the three years of his ministry, for all intents and purposes, in a backwater area full of both Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews had no hope, and they all had ideas of what the Messiah would look like. And he, he both met and exceeded, and did not meet at all all of those expectations. What are your expectations? I want him to fix our country. I want him to fix the world. I want him to have this Omicron thing be like a God vaccine that exposes. I don't want everyone exposed. I don't want anyone sick, but it looks like it's possible that we end up with immunity because not because of what we stuck in our arm, but because what what God allowed to take place. I want him to make it go away now. And I wanted him to make it go away on March 20, 2020. I want him to fit my agenda. I want him to show how famous he is, how glorious he is, how wonderful he is, and and, and I want him to just just show up in the sky and everyone see, and so that everyone realizes that I'm right. I mean, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? We want everyone to know how right we were. And that's not an accusation. That's just honest about me. I want people to realize how good God is that he is indeed sovereign, that he is indeed the creator of all, and that his created order is the order that will win out. But what is his agenda? Do not return evil with evil, but evil with kindness. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. And just in a few weeks, next week, we're going to have Todd Van Eck here from Mission India. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking here for a couple of weeks about the Sermon on the Mount. And most of the time we hear about that, we go, oh, Sermon on the Mount. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. But if you read it, it's tough stuff. It's hard. Some of the things he says about marital relationships, some of the things he talks about theft, some of the things he talks about when we mock another person, this he's not kidding. Folks, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I'm not trying to say that all of us have, have drifted or gone astray. That is not what I'm getting at. I'm just reading the gospel according to Matthew and realizing that, that to them and to me, Jesus came to disrupt. He came to change the upside-down, broken, and cracked world that we live in, flip it right side up, heal it, and let us see that we've been seeing the world wrong the whole time. His plan now and his plan then are the same plan. (coughs) Plan A. And he came that we might have life and have it in all of its fullness, but what God says full life is may be different than what I want full life to be. So I ask you this week, to consider asking God to disrupt your life—it's kind of like praying for patience. <laughs> Don't do that, because that means you know what patience is, and you're asking God to give you circumstances within within which you may exor- You must exercise patience. Don't pray for patience, but it's not a bad idea to ask God to disrupt your life. I'm not. God's not going to. He, he, he doesn't. He doesn't give us disease. I'm not. I'm not saying but he will use anything for his glory. So if he has not disrupted your life, maybe ask him if he would. Let's pray. Almighty God, who are we that you are even mindful of us? We get to address you personally. We get to boldly approach you personally. But remind us, Lord, that you are judge. Remind us, Lord, that you have much more grace for others than we have for them. Remind us, Lord, that we can't appear before you and say, look what I've done. We can only appear before you and say, look what you've done. Disrupt our lives, Lord, in a glorious way, but disrupt them so that we know we're yours. In Jesus' name, amen.